Welcome to the Developing Founders Podcast. This is your host, Brian Carney. Today on the show, I have a conversation with an entrepreneur from South Africa who is revolutionizing the process of getting a mortgage. He speeds this process up significantly, and even more importantly, it helps people in rural communities get a mortgage even if there is no bank branch in their area. It was an incredible conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. So without further ado, let's jump into the podcast. Tim Akinnesey is the CEO of MortgageMarket.co.za and the former managing executive of ABSA Home Loans. Prior to that, he was the Executive Head of Sales and Client Value Management at NedBank Home Loans. Tim is a seasoned property finance expert with over 15 years experience in the financial sector. Tim holds a BCom in Marketing and Supply Chain Management, an AMP at WITS, and an MBA from in Reading, UK, as well as an Executive Education from Duke University. Tim, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thanks for coming. I'm excited to dive into the conversation. When I saw some of the stuff that Mortgage Market was doing, I knew I had to try to get you on the show, which is kind of where I want to start. What really stuck out to me first was the fact that not only are you providing really a quick way for South Africans to get home loans, you're also providing a rebate to them which is pretty unheard of in this industry. So I thought that was, I definitely wanted to start there. So tell me a little bit about how that came about and, and just about mortgage market overall. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, a long story, but I can shorten it. So during my time at NetBank, I actually launched the first ever online application channel for NetBank home loans uh, in South Africa. So this was back in 2012. And um, that was really the first of, you know, this idea that you can take an industry uh, like home loans that is just filled with like handholding and complexity in terms of the overall journey of acquiring a, a home loan to fund your property. And we simplified it and we created a platform where consumers could go online and make an application fairly quickly straight into the bank's processing um, environment and get a response back from the bank. And um, as a result of that, uh, you know, you could literally walk through this entire process in a private manner as a private citizen and not have to worry about going into a branch or meeting up with a broker, et cetera. And so when we found a lot of success in doing that, and that platform pretty much on a monthly basis now attracts close to a thousand individuals doing it that way every month. So um, highly successful for the bank. And um I then thought about it to say, what is the next evolution of that, right? If this could work for one bank, why not create a marketplace where those same individuals could make the same simple single application through to a multitude of other lenders and then actually have the benefit of choice? So that was then the other benefit to say customers would then get choice and still the efficiency of just making a single application to, to all the um, banks. And then the question was, what is the revenue model behind that? And already uh, in South Africa, this idea of mortgage origination is, um, has been growing for the last 15 years. So if you look at what mortgage origination provides, is this 
ability to make a single application to multiple banks via broker. And so the banks are prepared to pay the broker for um, those applications once they convert. And a conversion is when a customer takes up that application through that bank. So I felt, well, if a customer can do this on their own, and we as mortgage market that brings a platform that enables a customer to do this, if we get paid a fee from the bank, why not split our commission, split that fee with the customer in a way that they got something back as a result of making that application through to the banks. So we sized it, we looked at the cost of acquisition and we sized what we felt we could give back to the customer as a tangible benefit and still run a profitable business. And uh, and hence the idea of the cashback came up. So we integrated a platform that was enabled us to do that in a way that the customer did not need any handholding and did not need any intervention from a human perspective. Still doesn't mean that they don't get contacted by one of our consultants that kind of just has a warm touch to them. They still have that, but for the most part, they could engage in this entire process completely end-to-end online. And then once they get their home loan approved and taken up, we then pay them a cashback. And that amount is up to 25000 If you convert that into uh, dollars, that would be about um, just over $2,000 that we give customers wow. at the top end. So it's, it's linked to the value of the home loan. And um, the bigger the home loan is, the bigger the cashback is. And that's how it works. And yeah, like you said, we are the only ones in South Africa that's offering that. We are the only ones probably in the world that's able to offer customers an end-to-end application experience and actually give them back something tangible that helps them with whatever costs for the home loan. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I like the the fact that you don't have a huge staff of customer service means that your software is really good. Um, I was listening to a book on Audible by the the guy who founded Square, and he was talking about when they founded Square, the idea was to have people be able to completely sign up for credit cards, small businesses sign up for credit card systems on their own. And his idea was, well, you know, millions of people use Gmail every day. When was the last time you had to talk to a Gmail customer service person? You don't because it just works. Yeah. And that that sounds kind of how this is with that added benefit of, of giving a, a bit of the referral fee you guys get back. That's that's awesome. Yeah, so that's that's a great idea. <laughs> so what was the kind of beginning transition from more of a corporate environment to a startup? What did that look like? Were there challenges there? I, I'd be interested in hearing your experience. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it truly has been a journey. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been a journey that has also been a combination of just the right time for certain things to happen. I mean, when I joined NetBank back in 2011, you know, then it was about the bank was going through some adversity. They had just been past the global financial crisis. Um, of course, mm-hmm. uh, the mortgage industry um, was hit the hardest through that. And they were looking for new ways of doing things, looking for new ways of engaging with customers without using the services of a broker. And so that worked out quite nicely because when we looked at saying, well, we can use our website uh, to create some kind of engagement platform that customers could actually purchase through, that worked and the timing there 
made sense. I was instrumental in developing that entire business and setting it up and putting the staff in place and re-engineering mm -hmm. the operations interface and that whole operating model. I was instrumental in doing that. So that was pivotal for me because it gave me a lot of experience about how to fundamentally change the way origination worked um, using tech. And so fast forward sort of seven, eight years later, uh, I get headhunted to go to APSA to run their mortgage business there. And um, they their ambition was to become a lot more customer-led and, uh, and a lot more um, tech-driven in terms of how they did things. So be more um, sort of more nimble in terms of how you use technology rather than people to do automated mm -hmm. things throughout the business. And so in that journey, I also kind of got really tired of the corporate politics that that was, you know, I mean, I'd been now 15 years in corporate and, and I got tired of that. And I said, well, perhaps maybe this isn't time to exit corporate and actually I'll look at an opportunity that was staring me right in the face, which is about how we advance the mortgage origination agenda in South Africa. So that transition was from corporate to starting a business was part about identifying that, you know, what we were trying to do here had product market fit, right? Uh, Safco was right for it. And uh, the industry of origination and the industry of home loans in general was right for it because... There was a lot of things that could be standardized that weren't standardized. There's a lot of things that could be automated that wasn't automated. And then there was this gap where banks are paying an origination fee to brokers to do something that uh, technology could very well comfortably do. And that then just sparked for me the, the thought that this was a really opportune time for me to go out and, um, and establish what is a marketplace that could essentially enable customers to get um, more control over that origination process, empower them at the same time in a way that got them thinking about their income, their expenses, the properties that they were buying, and to come face to face with their credits and affordability in a way that the origination channel in its current form doesn't necessarily always allow customers to get a hands-on view on that because the broker is the one who is pretty much guiding you through that process and, and making that application on your behalf. But if customers could come face to face with that, and we gave them a great design that allowed them to intuitively apply and, and do comparisons and to accept an application online, then uh, that could be a game changer. And that could feed into this narrative that we've got to add more value to customers in this buying journey. Because here's another realization, right? Uh, when a customer makes that, that decision to mm -hmm. become a homeowner, right their decision to become a homeowner triggers a value chain of other service providers that actually generate an income through that entire process right so let's start with the fact that if you decide to buy a house that means uh, an estate agent is actually going to sell you a house and take a brokerage fee for that so estate agent gets paid right they are going to pass your details through the attorneys who are going to take a fee for transferring that pro uh, a property or registering that property in your name, right? The banks are going to take a fee for originating that deal on your behalf. So there's an initiation fee that the banks will charge, right? The government's going to take a transfer duty mm -hmm. or a transfer cost, right? And all of this is happening whilst you as a customer that's taking that decision to buy a house 
you've not even paid your first installment yet, right? And there are all these other and there are all these other players right. who are rightfully taking a fee as a result of your decision to become a homeowner. And right. um, so we felt, well, as a as a business, we also want to create an opportunity for a customer to get something back, something tangible in the in the form of a a financial reward back. And hence the cash back then became this attractive thing that we could give customers a cash back to help them in this, you know, costly process of becoming a homeowner, because there are a lot of costs involved that uh, some typical first time home buyers aren't actually aware of. And so, so our cash back proposition became quite insightful and valuable for the customer, um, along with getting, you know, optionality on which, which lenders to go with. So, yeah, so all those factors meant it was quite easy for me to transition and do something that was unique and do something that was value, valuable for the industry. And uh, two years later, we have Mortgage Market and, um, and yeah, just uh, happy to be on this, this uh, journey. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible story. Um, since that brings up a couple questions, but the first one that kind of stuck out to me is right now you have, was it five banks that you work with? Yeah, we've actually increased that to six lenders. And South Africa is not as fragmented as like, say, the US is, you know, where you've got multiple lenders. I mean, like the banks in the US probably have a market share of if you had a market share of six, seven percent, that would be enormous, right? Over here, over here, the six banks that we have, pretty much your market shares with Standard Bank at thirty-five percent, Absur at twenty-three, FNB at twenty percent, Ned Bank at thirteen, and SA Home Loans at five percent, Investec at at four and a half percent. So I can I can call out the market shares because there's only f- six players really, and so. We literally cover the entire spectrum of lenders in the market, uh, you know. So that was a good thing for us from an integration perspective because we could easily integrate with those six lenders very quickly, uh, as opposed to trying to integrate thirty to forty lenders. Right. That that makes a lot of sense. What what did that first conversation look like with the first partner you were you were trying to work with? To be honest, it was easy because uh, we were not asking any of the banks to change their interface or to change how they operated. We were simply integrating through a switch. So the moment we, we understood how to integrate with a switch that was connected to those banks, then it was up to us to make sure that we uh, augmented that interface and made it simpler and easier in terms of how customers engage with our front end while still leaving the banks to pretty much operate as they currently do today. So it made it easy for us to strike agreements and to contractually contract with with the banks because there was not a significant change that they were making on their side in in the form of their technology and form of their operating models. So that was great because we already understood, what these are already understood that if you gave the banks an application form through an API or through a system that that was completed, they would be able to pass back a response or a quotation in a matter of a couple of hours to one day. So that turnaround time was already so efficient and fast for us that we didn't have to try to do anything different. Um, we, we were merely comfortable with saying if we if we give them 
quality information, quality data through, they would give us quality responses. And that's the way we've been able to build the business and grow um, consumers. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So what's the uh, time savings? Like if someone were working with a traditional broker, I would probably guess that it, it wouldn't be that same one or two hours, but would it be close to that? Or is this a pretty significant time savings for people who are applying for a home loan? It's actually pretty significant because um, a broker would have to take your information, would have to send you like a PDF form over email for you to complete that. Uh, They would need to recapture it and submit that through to the banks. And that process could take a couple of days versus our platform, it literally never sleeps. You You would go online, it would only display the information or the other data fields that are uh, pertinent to your profile and it submits straight into all the bank's processing environments. And because we are not dealing with your handwritten submission to the banks, we're dealing with a digital submission, the level of rework is significantly reduced and uh, therefore the banks can get back to you uh, in a fairly short space of time, like I said, from as little as a couple of hours all the way through to 48 hours. Yeah. Okay. Huh. That's that's really interesting. <laughs> so I guess one kind of last question I have about mortgage market, and then we can dive a little bit into kind of your, your journey in business, is uh, right now, what is your market penetration? Are you predominantly in a couple metro areas? Are you across all of South Africa? What, is, what does that look like at this point? Yeah, it's a good question. We, we have uh, complete coverage over the entire geography of South Africa. Wow. So, um, yeah. And, and what's always helpful as well is where the banks don't even have a physical branch or physical footprint. Yeah. Right? As long as the individuals have access to the Internet, they, they would get access to be able to make a mortgage application through to the banks that we work with. So that that does help um, in terms of um, just our overall coverage. And that's been sort of the unintended or unseen value that we've been able to bring is when you have customers that are economically active in smaller towns Mm -hmm. and the bank doesn't feel like there's enough frequency of footprint to actually have a physical branch, we're able to get to those customers by being able to advertise to them online and, uh, and and then they can still make applications to get their homes bonded in those areas without um, having an actual branch there. That's a really positive thing in terms of just uh, this element of social inclusion and financial inclusion um, in yeah. the context of, of where we're going as a, as a country. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's fantastic. Being able to buy real estate is, is so important if you're trying to, to pull yourself out of an impoverished state. I mean, real estate is one of the best ways to do that. So that's, that's incredible that you can reach places where they typically wouldn't be able to, to get a bank loan very easily. That's, that's, a cool, that's a cool thing. Yeah, so yes, I lied. I have one more question about mortgage market, and then we can dive into your <laughs> Sure. <laughs> um, I, I'm interested in the, the funding aspect. How did that look like? What uh, was the journey to get funded? Yeah, I'm just interested in that story. Right. So, uh, you know, I was really fortunate enough that, um, you know, uh, because I'd had a corporate career um, and I'd done well in corporate, you know, I'd really moved up the ranks mm-hmm. fairly quickly 
that was also one of the things that, you know, from a timing perspective worked out quite nicely was I, I had enough investments and savings to be able to say, well, I can go at this for at least a two-year period and self-fund myself. You know, we had, I didn't have to look too far for uh, investors uh, because, as you all know, you know, uh, money at an early stage of, of any business is like air. You know, that's like what gets your idea to that minimum viable uh, phase and, you know, gets it being understood better, et cetera. So I could, I could go at the ideas, shape the concept, shape the, uh, the, the foundations of the business um, on my own. Um, and admittedly, I do, I do have a, a founding partner that are an institution themselves mm-hmm. where they came on this journey. They, they own 30% of the business. I own 70% of it. And um, together we, we put in the startup capital to get the business off the ground. And very quickly, once we needed to constitute a board, I then looked at taking some additional funding through private investors uh, who came in and bought, you know, four and a half percent of business just before we had launched, probably about a month into our launch. Okay. So it was a combination of my my personal savings, uh, my institutional investors putting in some money, and um, the small group of, of investors. And of course, we launched in 20, uh, 2020, 2020 um, last year, and boom, we had COVID right at our doorstep, right as we had had like all of our outdoor advertising put up, and we were really about to, you know, start um, engaging the market and building the brand and creating a lot of brand awareness. And you know, the entire nation just went on a on a national lockdown and. Uh, so we lost a little bit of money on, yeah, <laughs> with, yeah. with the ads, but but very quickly we realized that we didn't have to make too much of an adjustment because we're really cloud-based business, so we could all work yeah. remotely. But uh, what became very apparent was that we are still part of a network or a value chain um, that relies on estate agents to right. sell homes and um, and be able to conclude sale agreements for customers that would then come over to us to do the origination. Right. So once that then started to fall flat, that then obviously affected uh, a lot of our projections on growth mm-hmm. and sales, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we were very flat and we really struggled with volume through the whole lockdown period, uh, which is normal. I think everybody you know, went through that pain. Yeah. And so uh, around about June, we started being, uh, we started courting and entertaining uh, potential other investors who had seen our value proposition, who had seen what we were doing and were like, was like, this is really interesting and this could be a game changer if they were able to pull it off. Yeah. Of course, this is now in the heart of COVID. Um, so we didn't have like a lot of data to really right. uh, justify our valuation and all that. But um, we had enough to be able to show that our technology was was working very well and that the cvp was attractive to customers and and the whole experience was working as we had expected so um that became key for us because as we then got towards the the tail end of uh where restrictions were being lifted up Uh sort of like september october november and more people got wind of what we were doing in the in the property development space we really just grew Uh And as our growth happened, um, we were also then concluding 
our our series a uh, funding where we raised 10 10 million rand um at a valuation of uh 50 million rand um for the business which is really really great because we started to demonstrate our growth um through the back end of the year and that was nice because we in the front end of the the year we we sort of wrote like probably a hundred million worth of home loans through the first nine months and in one week we we were we had pretty much done more in home loan sales than we did in the first nine months so uh, wow. again so we understood that there is that hockey stick effect yeah. and uh, so now we are you know moving into 2021 you know our budget is set such that you know we we are in for some serious growth. Mm-hmm. And uh, we obviously just have to hope that, uh, you know, all the vaccine rollout, you know, happens effectively and we get back to, uh, uh, I don't want to say back to normal, but an improved normal, an improved way of doing things, because we certainly have to have learned, you know, some really tough lessons through this time. And hopefully we are, we are a lot better when uh, things open up uh, fully. Yeah, I agree. That's interesting. So it sounds like kind of one one hitch was the estate agent side. Is that something that that you will be exploring for mortgage market to do that part of it as well? Because the mortgage side, you pretty much could handle completely digitally. Um, But that estate side was still something kind of in the way. Is that something you're looking at? Or is that down the road? What, What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think that real estate does need a revamp. Mm-hmm. I think that the way real estate's been done can be aided significantly by um, technology, especially in the in the in the space of how consumers view property, understand it, understand uh, the value of it relative to the next uh, suburb or call it um, geography. What else is surrounded around that real estate? Right. I think that real estate agents can really be a lot more insightful to that whole home buying journey yeah. for consumers. Um, and they can rely a lot on tech. So I do think that that's an interesting space that we are going to get into. We are quite close to developers, like um, property developers, which are just in the context of where South Africa is, you know, uh, quality homes, that whole process of developing more homes mm-hmm is driven by property developers mm-hmm. developing massive complexes or you know standalone units townhouses etc so we, we are a lot closer to that space and uh we've tied in our origination platform quite closely to their sales uh, channel but there's still a lot of real estate agents out there who are selling established homes already and that is another area that we're turning to to see how we can be uh, more service to them uh, especially with one of the tools that we've developed called our pre-approval capability oh. that in essence allows customers to get a two minute in two minutes to get a view of exactly how much they can afford mm-hmm. through our integration with Experian. And secondly, uh, whether or not a bank will be able to fund them um, given what their credit profile comes out to and what their affordability is in terms of their disposable income. So that's another tool that we built and that came from some design work and a tool that I built even back when I was at NetBank. We just uh, adapted it for our own use and it's become a really great lead generator for us internally. And it's become the starting point for how consumers actually decide 
on what property to buy based on what their uh, pre-approval uh, result is uh, when they use our pre-approval tool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that. Uh, <laughs> I can see how that would be really helpful for for estate agents. So I was interested when you were young. Uh, was your plan to go into banking and mortgages and eventually fintech, or what? What were you thinking? Uh, your your goal was. The honest truth is that, you know, none of this stuff was ever even in my realm of possibility or thought process growing up, you know. Um, but I'll tell you what was, and it was this concept of this idea of being a lot more liberated, you know, if it was um, in terms of my time, in terms of the things that I got involved in, you know, of course, you know, growing up, you're, you're in, in a system. I mean, you get growing up in high school, you're in a high school system, you know, they pretty much control your hours, they control what you do every day, yeah. et cetera. And, um, and you get to university and there's a lot more freedom to choose your courses, et cetera, but you're still in a system, you know, um, I bet you do have a lot more freedom and flexibility. And then you get into the corporate environment when, you, when I started working and yes, you're making money, but you're still pretty much part of an organization that, you know, it's filled with structures and bureaucracy and all that. So again, you're in another system. And so not that I've ever rebelled, but I've always never felt comfortable with this idea that my, that my time and the things I did were always controlled. And, yeah. and I've been fortunate that I became successful within my corporate career very early enough to have the level of autonomy as a, a manager, a senior manager, as an executive to control the things that I did that I felt were rewarding and added value. Uh, and, and I had bought bosses that supported the, the startups that I did within the corporate space. And that was, that was quite nice. So I'd always enjoyed a level of freedom that allowed me to do a lot of things. And so moving into the entrepreneurial space, I now have a lot more freedom to impact the industry and to impact customers in a way that I feel is value adding to them and they can actually uh, see the benefits of the things that we do or the things that I end up doing. So that's been great. So I don't really have much to complain about in terms of just my evolution as a, as, as a person and, and how I've been involved in, in a lot of meaningful things. And obviously this experience is not the same for a lot of people. And I, and, and I recognize that because I'm very grateful and fortunate for the journey that I've had so far. But if you ask me, you know, what is the one frustration I had growing up? Uh, I grew up in a household of like, uh, I'm one of seven siblings, you know. Um, I am as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's always been a feeling of restriction, a feeling of like, you know, I'm part of a clustering of uh -huh. <laughs> people that are much older than myself. And I've always wanted to just break out and kind of do my own thing. So, right. so being in this space, I mean, I've never been more happier than I have been yeah. in the last two and a half years, you know, um, I really just been able to, to live, to live life in a, in a very meaningful way. And, and, mm -hmm. And, and to work incredibly hard. I've also never worked as hard as I have in the last two and a half years in my life. And that's by choice, you know, so kind of a strange feeling, but yeah, still just, you know, enjoying the process and enjoying the journey. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. 
So are you the youngest of seven? You said a lot of people that are older. Are you in the middle? Where are you? Uh, I'm the second last born. So I have a brother. Uh, yeah, yeah. So he's a civil engineer. He's about 30 years of age. So yeah, I'm right at the tail end. So I, I don't even have the benefit of saying I'm the baby <laughs> of the house. You know, uh, I kind of like, I'm just right at the right at the bottom. Not enough to, to get all the, you know, the lovely sort of uh, cushioning of being the last born, right. but still not high enough to ever get any of the benefits of being the eldest sibling, you know, so. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That makes sense. Uh, that's interesting. So what, growing up, what was one of your first memories of like business or entrepreneurship or is there one that you can think of? Yeah. So, you know, it depends on how far back I look. I mean, uh, <laughs> I've always had a, a sort of like a streak of, when I figured out that, you know, money is one of the key liberators of this world, you know, um, uh, that was in my first year when I, uh, I asked my folks to, um, to give me my second year's tuition to travel to the UK and stay with my cousins there and to work in a sports store and to, you know, make some money when I was not at school. So after the semesters were over, I could go there and work. And that was my first, the first time that I um, went overseas, you know, um, it was my first year of university and, and I made some money over the December period, uh, got back, had a bunch of money, had my own clothes, could buy my own things. And then I started working as a promoter for uh, Unilever in universities. Oh, wow. And yeah, so that was my first taste of working in my first year. And yeah. and I loved it and I never looked back. I never looked back in terms of just knowing that I can put myself to work and make money. And, and that felt really good. And so even when I started my corporate job, um, my first job, I recognized that I could use, you know, uh, my time outside of work mm -hmm. to uh, have a side gig and, 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 and do something you know, that was outside of my, my main job. And I actually sold like, I sold hair weaves, you know, uh, so, you know, weaves for like, you oh, yeah. know, yeah. a lot of black women wear weaves around here and probably in the U.S., of course, in the uh -huh. U.S. as well. Right. Uh, so I sold weaves for some time and um, uh, some guy would bring them in and I would put like a hundred percent markup on it and it was still <laughs> cheaper than what was sold here um, locally and, and the quality was better. So I would sell hair weaves and, and that was cool. And um, yeah, I did a lot of in interesting things around, around that. So I was always kind of around money from the time I recognized that, Hey, you know, get, get you money and, and you would, you pretty much control your own, your own time and, and the things you wanted. So uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's been cool. That's that's interesting. I love uh, stories of side hustles. So what yeah. what was what gave you the idea to start selling weaves? Well, I, I, it was actually like an incidental thing. It wasn't like I, I kind of said, I'm going to sell weaves. I, I just recognized that a lot of women spend a lot of money on this, you know, and and when I figured that uh, I kind of have it back in my mind. So when somebody uh, I befriended a guy who was uh, part of a, a, a crew, an airline crew 
they were flying into South Africa from one of the African countries. And like he was telling me, you know, um, that one of the things that he's able to do is like deliver packages, you know. And I, I remember asking him about what are some of the trade stuff that he's able to get from like China and stuff. And he was like, yeah, you know, hair weaves really sell well, you know. So I actually went online and I looked at some of the, you know, the different brands and the d- different lengths and the inches of all the hairs and all. And I compared them to what they were going for locally. And it was like a fraction of the cost. Hmm. So then yeah. he started supplying that to me and uh, a friend of mine who loved hair weave, I started giving them to her and she was selling them on my behalf. Uh, so as long as I could get it in, pay for it, mark it up and sell it to her wholesale, I was making money. And that was that was cool. And she was still able to get these quality weaves yeah. <laughs> at a good price. <laughs> so it kind of worked out for everybody. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really neat. Were there other side hustles you did or was that kind of your main one? Uh, you know, I guess the other thing was just buying property early, early in my, in my career. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, um, yeah, I bought my first property probably two years into working and, um, I still have the property till today. Uh, but I paid it down and used some of that capital to get into other things, to buy the things. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I've tried a few other things that I felt was not too far from my core competency. You know, um, yeah, it's interesting. I still did some stuff around lecturing, you know, um, at universities, you know, and and sort of mentoring. And uh, what else? I've got a bit of a brain freeze here. I I can't even think of some (laughs) of the other interesting things I did. I didn't do them for too long because, like, you know, I, I also had quite a a busy uh, corporate career, you know, so I right, was doing very right. well in corporate and that took up a lot of my time. So between that and business school and, and, you know, running quite a few startups within corporates yeah. uh, that took up a lot of my time, but, but I'd always interesting, always had a, a view for like saying, if I ran my own business, this is how I would do it. Or if I ran something else this is how I'll do it. Yeah. And those things always went through my mind. And I always kind of told myself, well, maybe some of the lifetime because, you know, you've got this great job and you're doing well here. So yeah. chances are you're destined to have a corporate career only to find myself in a position where I could actually go out and leave corporate and start a business and, and right. uh, you know, put a lot of the skill sets and the the experiences and the network that I had into a business, you know, um, mm-hmm. that I could be fairly comfortable, I could be successful at. And yeah, a combination of that is what mortgage market is today. Huh. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Uh, cool. Well, I think that is a good time. We're running running pretty close to time. I want to save enough for the, the last five questions because those can be a lot of fun to dive into. And so we'll go into the, the final five questions that I ask guests on the show. And the first one is, what is your favorite business book and why? Well, I don't think I have like a favorite, but I think a couple of them have been quite quite instrumental in my journey so far. So Phil Knight's book, uh, Shoe Dog, was mm-hmm. like so cool to read uh, yeah. when I was starting out. 
uh, because of how he wrote the book, you know, he really told a story that was um, very pragmatic and in-depth about, you know, yeah. his journey to starting Nike. And, and, and that was phenomenal. Um, then the second book was uh, Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. That was really, really cool. I, I enjoyed that book um, as, a, as a second read just after I had launched Mortgage Market. That was really useful for me. And uh, yeah, now I'm reading a, a third book, which probably is my favorite life book, not just business book, okay. which is by um, a writer, uh, uh, MJ DeMarco, okay. called uh, Unscripted. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Unscripted, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Amazing book. Really? Amazing, amazing book. I'm actually rereading it now or listening to it now on an audiobook, and it's been yeah. really fascinating. So probably the third one for me, uh, yeah, unscripted has been really, really cool. I'll have to check that out. I've heard it uh, recommended a few times, but I've never, okay. never taken the leap to get it. What was your first shoe dog? What was one of your favorite stories or anecdotes there? He had so many cool ones, but what, what one stood out to you? Right. I think it was all his travels, hey, and just, and Phil's uh, knack for exploring. And also just how he was passionate about running, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, the half, half, uh, half mile sort of times and, right. and who was really good, you know, during his high school days and, 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 and sort of yeah. college days. And, and that was cool. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed that. And then also the concept of how he was starting out and having to fend off competition, you know, in his early days in Nike, you know, with, with his Japanese suppliers and, and trying to get exclusivity out of them and, and get sort of orders from them. That was quite nice. Uh, I learned a lot of lessons there. Yeah. yeah. I learned yeah, the I lesson agree. of pay, pay Nisho first, which is understanding, <laughs> understanding who you need to keep a strong eye on and, and, and keep them on your side. So, yeah. So pain show first always sticks to my mind. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. He, it was an interesting book because you don't, you forget that Nike wasn't the biggest until relatively recently. Right. And, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cool. Well, the, we goes into the second question, which is always a fun one to dive into, which is what is sure. one hobby that many people might not know you have? Uh, so, yeah, a lot of people don't know this hobby, but like the ones people who are really close to me probably know it um, is that I enjoy a good poker game. Okay. I, I, I enjoy a really good poker game. So yeah. I, um, I watch a lot of WSOP. Um, uh -huh. I watch a lot of poker, and um, and I learned a lot about life through just a game of poker. And there are a lot of similarities, a lot of analogies in life and poker. You know how to read people mm -hmm. and and how to just how to be competitive. You know, I'm a very competitive person, so okay. so poker allows me to be competitive in a in a fairly safe way. I would say, you know, right. I, I can be. <laughs> as I can take a lot of risk, yeah. you know, um, and, and calculated one at that, you know, and just being able to pull off certain hands and, and be yeah. able to, uh, you know, compete for all the marbles is something that, I, that really, you know, gets my blood flowing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Have you read uh, Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke? 
I've heard of the book. I haven't read it yet. That one's interesting. The poker. Yeah, thinking in bets, right? Yeah, yeah. She. Uh, okay. I think she started out playing poker in like underground barroom poker games, and then worked her way up into uh, the World Series of poker. It's really interesting book. Okay. Yeah, I. I should get it. You should. You should check it out. I'm terrible at poker, but it is a lot of fun. So yeah, yeah, sometime if you're you're in the States or if I'm over in South Africa, we should get a poker game going. It'd be a lot of fun. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I've actually come out to the to the World Series of Poker twice in Vegas. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I was planning on going last year, but of course COVID happened. Yeah. So yeah, I'm looking forward to time where I can get back <laughs> and uh, and just be around during that season. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's an interesting game for sure. Cool. Yeah. Well, we can go into the, the third question then, which is uh, in business, who do you look up to or who is your kind of like business idol, I guess is one way to put it. Yeah, you know, it's it's difficult to point to one business idol. I think I love, you know, quite a few things about various business um, individuals. Uh, I've been following a lot of uh, Chamath Palihapitiya, okay. uh, following a lot of his um, his commentary around how he thinks about business and VCs and um, and just uh, life in general. I find him to be quite an insightful and pragmatic individual. Uh, I've been following a lot of, uh, you know, what um, Jeff Bezos has done from a business perspective. So I like his thinking around consumers. I like Elon Musk's, um, just his worldliness, you know, where he thinks at a, at a he thinks in a form of big, big swings, you know. Oh yeah, that's for sure. I like that about about Elon. Yeah, yeah. So, so those are the three people that you know of late have really been gleaning a lot of insights from. Mm. Um, yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't really zone in on one personality uh, wholly because you know we're all flawed. That's that's my belief. So yeah. I don't, I don't just absorb one individual, but I. I take particular traits from various yep. business leaders, you know, and I, and I try to, you know, incorporate them into how, how I do things, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's definitely a lot of people you can take their, their business savvy. Then there might be other people that you can take kind of how they were with their family. And if you blend everything, it kind of creates the perfect entrepreneur and perfect life. So yeah, that, that makes sense. Cool. We can go to the fourth question or uh, chugging along, which is what is your very first memory of money? Uh, I would say it was probably uh, when I was like six or seven. Um, we left Nigeria to relocate to South Africa um, in the late 80s. And I recall having like a bunch of money that I was so excited about but I never got to use it because we were about to get on a flight. <laughs> so I had this money in local, in the local currency, Naira. And I was so excited that I could do something with it. And, and I realized like the next day we were flying out and I couldn't do much with it. I probably, I don't even know what I did. Probably spent it all at the airport or something. That was my first memory of money. Kind of like, after wanting it so badly in an early age and getting it and then, you know, moving to a different country. That was weird. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. I bet. That, that's interesting. I guess we can go to the, the fifth one, which is what is your favorite quote? Oh, uh, you know, 
I think something I always remind myself is, you know, if you want something done, do it yourself. You know, uh, <laughs> that's that's kind of like my my favorite sort of like in my mind trigger. But if I had to really consider it, you know, uh, it's just, um, you know, actions speak louder than words. You know, yeah, uh, that's been something that has stood me well throughout my entire career is let your actions speak for themselves, you know, uh, in terms of how you show up and, you know, how you, how I judge people as well and, and how I, um, and how I assess things uh, is, is based mm -hmm. on, on the actions and not just the words, you know? So yeah, that would be my favorite ones. I know it sounds really simple and cliche, but like if you really, really internalize it and you really apply it on a daily basis, you probably get a lot more right than than wrong if yeah if you kind of stick to that yeah yeah that makes sense usually cliches are are cliche because they make sense <laughs> yeah <laughs> perfect well yeah thanks so much for your time today it's been it's been a pleasure talking to you getting to know a little bit about your background and in mortgage market uh, is there anywhere you would like the audience to go to check out what you're doing yeah, uh, you can check us out on on all the social media platforms um, on uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. We have um, profiles there, so you can follow uh, the journey of um, of our business and how clients experience in us. Um, our website address is quite simply mortgagemarket.co.za. Um, yeah, the the name is quite self explanatory. You know, we are a marketplace for mortgages. So yeah, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, that's where they could uh, they could meet us, and um, looking forward to seeing those who take an interest uh, in our business um, contact us. Yeah, absolutely, and I'll put all of that in the show notes. You have a, a good rest of your afternoon, and thanks again for making time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for uh, reaching out. I mean, it's not every day that uh, you know somebody in the U.S. Um, takes an interest in a business across across the ocean uh in south africa so uh yeah all the best to you too and um looking forward to seeing more of your show thank you as always thank you for joining in our conversation if you have any recommendations on guests for the show or any comments on this episode or if you would like to be on the show yourself email me at podcast at studentsofbusiness.com to get our show notes and to be alerted on the release of new episodes, hit that subscribe or follow button in your favorite podcast player or go to developingfounders.com and subscribe to our email list. Thanks for joining and I'll see you next week.